Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Joining us is the bishop in the Santa Barbara region of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, Bishop Barron. Good to be talking with you. Hey, Brandon. Always joy to be on with you. How are the kids doing? Oh, we're doing great. You know, we just found out, I don't think we talked about it here in the show, we're expecting our seventh <laughs> child in, in uh, August. So that'll be the, the great tiebreaker. We got the three I'm boys delighted. and the three girls. Yeah. How about twins? Well, <laughs> ask my wife <laughs> about each. how exciting one, that would be. One of each. Uh, keep the, <laughs> that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, um, let's catch up a little bit. We just last episode talked about your, your trip home for Christmas and the Bishop's Retreat. We're yeah. recording this here in early January, and you got a couple of things coming up in the next week or two. Uh, the n- next week is an event I think we've talked a little bit about. You're going to the headquarters of Amazon. Give us a, a quick reminder what that's about. Yeah. You know, I've been to Facebook and to Google. So Amazon invited me to come up and talk about the new book, Arguing Religion, in a kind of fishbowl um, setting. So I guess I'll be on a stage with a, a interlocutor who asked me questions about the book, and then we open it up to the crowd that's there. Um, so I was delighted, more than happy to do it. I, I've always loved Seattle. Uh, and of course, you know, Amazon is one of the great uh, uh, formators of culture today. So happy to do that. And then the second thing coming up is the following week, isn't it, is uh, World Youth Day, which I, I wasn't planning on going to, frankly. And then I got invited just maybe about a month ago to give a talk at the final, um, I think it's a, a big benediction, you know, an Eucharistic procession within the arena for the English speakers, which I did in Krakow uh, back in 2016, the same thing. So uh, I thought, oh, how can I pass that off? So I said yes to that. So those are two things coming up shortly. Where's the World Youth Day again this year? It's in uh, Panama, Panama City. Panama. So I've never been there before. Uh, and that's another reason I was kind of eager to, to go. Okay, well, last week we sort of fist an article uh, from the New York Times. It was an op-ed by Ross Douthat called The Return of Paganism. There's another New York Times op-ed that I've seen floating around social media and all sorts of websites getting a lot of traction. And I wanted to talk through this one with you. This one is by David Brooks. I I think he's Jewish. Um, He wrote one of my favorite books of all time called The Road to Character, kind of like these short moral biographies. But this op-ed that he wrote just last week is titled The Morality of Selfism, subtitle The Gospel of St. You, (laughs) Y-O-U, The Gospel (laughs) of St. You. And it's a bit satirical, tongue-in-cheek type of thing, but he's basically critiquing this culture of selfism. And here's how he begins. He says, we live in a culture of selfism, a culture that puts tremendous emphasis on self, on self-care, on self-display. And one of the things we've discovered is that you can be a very good person while only thinking about yourself. Back, <laughs> back in the old days, people thought morality was about living up to some external standard of moral excellence. Abraham Lincoln tried to live a life of honesty and courage. Mother Teresa tried to live up to a standard of selfless love. But not any longer today. Uh, what do you take? What do you make of that assessment? Well, there's there's a lot to it. I, I've admired his work too for a long time, and uh, he's speaking for this classical moral tradition, um, and he thinks that we've fallen uh, away from it. I think he's he's dead right about that. Um, you know, I, I've used as sort of a model for many years. Uh, Your life is not about you. Is a great, uh, I think, biblical uh, principle. It's your life, but it's not about you. In other words, the care of yourself is not your primary uh, uh, motivation. In fact, there's something 
uh, childish about that. You know, a, a little baby, certainly, and then even a, like a, a toddler, a little kid is, is self-preoccupied. Uh, taking care of his or her needs is what it's all about. And the child naturally and appropriately expects those needs to be met by parents and, and everybody else. And the key to, to, to life now, the key to, to real maturity and joy is to break out of that. Hence the initiation rituals of, of, of most primal peoples around the world. The fact that we've lost that is a, is a very telling thing in itself. Um, one of the, the primary points of those rituals is to break you free of that, which is why they're so tough, why they involve separation and uh, scarification and and a physical assault in many ways. You know that you're you're wounded, you're marked, uh, you're forced to do difficult things because they're trying to break you out of the self-regarding attitude of a child into the. I would call it value regarding attitude of, of the mature person. When you've intuited, I'm using uh, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand's language, you've, you've intuited certain objective moral values that now ought to govern your life and demand of you sacrifice for them. You know, um, When you realize, depending on your culture maybe, but uh, that your country or your city or your family is more important than you. When you realize the call to, to courage or to prudence or to justice is more important than your private concerns, now you're ready to live. Now you're ready to move into a mature spiritual space. So I, as I read Brooks there, that's what he's trying to recover, is that very ancient transcultural uh, conviction that... <laughs> That selfism is is childish, you know. It's it's the moral attitude of the of the toddler, and if that becomes a general cultural attitude, we're in some serious trouble. Okay, let's continue. Again, he's writing satirically. This is not what he's actually arguing. Yeah. Kind of the opposite. So he says there are two big problems with these external moral standards of trying to conform your life to something else beyond you. First is that. This is actually harmful. And when people hold up external standards of moral excellence, they make you feel judged. These people make you feel sad because you may not live up to the standard. It's very cruel of them to make you feel troubled in this way. So when someone does this, you should just say, hey, that makes me feel judged. And then just walk away. Don't stoop to their level. What do you think about that? I say boo-hoo. I say that's the attitude of a child. That's, a, that's the attitude of a, of a pre-adolescent, you know? that my feelings of being hurt are what matters most. Come on. I mean, anyone who's morally serious is going to be hurt and judged. And again, that's that point in the initiation rituals. If, if life hasn't done it yet, we'll do it to you right now. We'll hurt you right now to remind you that life is hard and life is demanding. Um, God help us if we take as our moral absolute, I shouldn't be harmed. Well, then you're going to live permanently in a playpen. You know, you'll live permanently in a little room for the toddlers. And and also, maybe we'll get to this, Brandon, but you'll fight like toddlers. You know, I mean, you, you know all about little kids. Uh, how do little kids relate to each other? Because they're all living in that same self-absorbed space. Watch how toddlers fight. That's how many people today are fighting all the time. 
So I say boo-hoo to that. I mean, of course life hurts. Life is painful. Of course you're being judged. Good. You should be judged. But that means that you're, you've broken out of your self-regard and you're actually in relation to values that matter. And of course they're going to judge you. Of course we're all going to be morally inadequate. Good. Good. That means we're, we're starting to live life in a morally serious way. Um, you know, see, to be under the judgment of God is a very interesting category. If we simply psychologize that as, oh, gosh, I feel bad because this tyrannical parent in the sky is coming down hard on me, that's totally missing the point. To be under the judgment of God is to be actually in a mature and liberated space because now I'm, I'm realizing my life is not about me and, and I'm being called into high adventure, see? Now read our, our friends Tolkien and company, you know, these great stories of um, the hobbits breaking out of their little space and going on high adventure. Uh, what if, if Bilbo and Frodo just said, oh, no, I, I don't want to experience any pain. I, I don't want to experience any discomfort. See, we're, a big part of that story is, is when they're forced through discomfort, you know, even something in the beginning is as simple as, I don't think we're going to get our second breakfast. <laughs> well, you'll be lucky to get your first breakfast, pal. You know, but that's the point is, is they're being taken out of the nursery and brought now into a serious moral space. Uh, if all we're worried about is, oh my gosh, I won't get my second breakfast or, oh my gosh, you're going to hurt my feelings. Well, grow up. All right. Brooks continues again, satirically. The second problem with these external moral standards is that they're very hard to relate to. People are always talking about how Nelson Mandela came out of prison and tried to usher in an era of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, that's all very good and well for Nelson Mandela. But what does this have to do with your life? If people are talking to you, shouldn't they be focusing their attention on your life? Shouldn't they be saying things you can relate to? If somebody starts talking about some grand hero who is dead and lives far away, you should just respond, sorry, that's not relatable. These people have to learn how to keep things real. <laughs> of course, but what they want there is to keep things deeply unreal. Um, you know, go back to the initiation rituals again. So the scarification and, and, the, and the physical marking is a big part of it. But also the introduction of a young person into the lore of the tribe and that's, again, transcultural. So take the young man, for example, out of his domestic space, scarify him, mark him, and then begin to tell him the stories of the great heroes. Who are the people that, that formed this tribe? Maybe those who, by a great heroic act, you know, setting out into the forest or into the tundra, you know, whatever your geography happens to be, and undertaking great uh, adventures and, and enduring great uh, uh, dangers they establish this community. You tell that story to, to inspire these young people to do something similar, you know? So heck, the story of Mandela and, and how telling that is because someone who for the sake of justice was willing to endure, what was it, 28 years or something of, I mean, staggering to think about, of imprisonment. Many of those years, I think, in solitary confinement. And then to come out of that experience the way he did full, not of, of anger and bitterness, but, but of a desire to build a new society. Uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a classic hero's tale. Yeah, tell that to young people. Yes, encourage them to walk a similar path. I mean, to say that that's alien to them. No, that's their, that's their pattern. Are they judged by it? Yeah, sure they are. Good. 
you know, boo hoo. If you're feeling judged by it, uh, grow up. Um, the mother Teresa story, you know, tell that to a young Catholic kid about this, this lady who, uh, in many different ways left her safe spaces, right. And took on ever greater moral and spiritual hardship and endured great uh, suffering to come to this high spiritual attainment. That's a great story to tell people. I don't know how that's alien to anybody. Uh, your life isn't about you, and the heroes help us to see that. Brooks continues, and here he puts his finger on something, I think, really perceptive. He says, satirically, the good news is that these days we don't base our values on moral excellence, as the ancients might. They might have said the goal of life is to be virtuous, uh, to be good. He said, instead, today we base our lives on meaning. People are always saying they want to lead a meaningful life. They want to do things that have meaning. But, Brooks says, one great thing about meaning is it's all about the emotions that you yourself already have. We say that an experience has meaning when that tingly, meaningful feeling wells up inside. Picture yourself, he says, shopping at a farmer's market where everything's locally grown. Do you feel the tingly, meaningful feeling welling up inside? Of course you do. The other great thing about meaning is that everybody gets to define meaning in his or her own way. You, you don't have to read a lot of thick books or have hard emotional or hard experiences to feel meaning. Just do things that give you good feelings. It, does that seem like a pretty accurate assessment of today's culture? <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, the whole feelings thing, I've been on this uh, kick for a long time because much of my life has been um, lived during this, I call it romantic period, sort of neo-romanticism, where we so elevate feeling. Just think for a second, you know, you're in a, watching a movie or listening to a song or talking to people. What's of higher value to them, heart or head, uh, ideas or feelings? And I mean, we all know automatically, of course, the heart's more important. Follow than your heart, follow your heart. Yeah. yeah. Of course, your feelings are more important than your intellect. But see, the, the overwhelming majority of, of human beings across the centuries would never have agreed to that. In fact, it's the disciplining of feeling that's key to emotional and spiritual maturity. Again, initiation rituals. Um, I don't like being sent out into the woods with a few simple provisions and maybe a simple weapon to defend myself. I'm going to be cold. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be uncomfortable. I don't like this. Well, that's the point, kiddo. Their elders would say that's the point, so that you can learn how to discipline your feelings so as to do the right thing, because the right thing doesn't always feel good. In fact, it typically doesn't. Now, nuance that a little bit. Can you train your feelings so that? You do get, if you want to put it that way, the tingly feeling when you're doing the right thing. Yeah, Aristotle would have called that habituation to virtue, right? By the right habituation, you you become more adept at doing the right thing. It, it agrees with you uh, to do the right thing. That means you're becoming a virtuous person. Good, good. Nothing wrong with feelings, but the idea is to bring the feelings under the aegis of the moral enterprise, not vice versa. If the feelings come to dominate, now go to Plato's great image, you know, of the chariot and the charioteer, right? Reason that is directing the chariot and, and the horses stand for the spirited emotion and for these, these animal emotions. Good. If they're under the guidance of reason, then they can power the soul. Terrific. 
The problem comes so when the horses rebel against the charioteer, kick him out, and now the horses run wild. What's going to happen? You'll get nowhere. You know, I, I would say not just intellect here. I'd say when moral seriousness is running the chariot, now use your feelings properly trained, like properly trained horses, and man, they're they're going to power that chariot. You're going to make real progress. But don't kick the charioteer out in the name of emotional freedom, which in fact is going to lead you to disaster. So I think that's dead right. That's a real problem. Uh, if we think we're governed by our, our tingly feelings, I mean, God help us. All right. David Brooks continues, if, if the cardinal virtue of this culture of selfism is meaning, finding meaning, how do we do it? And so he shares a four-stage process for finding mm. meaning today. And let's briefly talk through each one of these. So number one, first, you want to feel indignant all the time. Back in the <laughs> old days, morality was all about loving and serving others. But now it's about displaying indignation about things that other people are doing wrong. When you are indignant, he says, or woke, to use today's parlance, you are showing that you have a superior moral awareness. You don't actually have to do anything. Your indignation is itself a sign of your own goodness. And if you can be indignant quicker than the people around you, that just <laughs> yeah. shows how much more good you are. Yeah. No, that, you know, and the test, because there's nothing wrong with moral indignation. Think of the, the great Hebrew prophets, right? Think of Jesus cleansing the temple or calling the Pharisees, you know, whitewashed sepulchers. Nothing wrong with moral indignation. But the test is... Are you yourself actively engaged in fighting the evil that you're you're noticing? Uh, I I will have much more confidence in Mother Teresa's moral indignation than I will in some you know kid sitting in in a dorm room in college you know just trying to signal his own virtue. Um, let the prophetic uh, indignation arise from your own deep commitment then sure, I'll take that seriously. And, and I'll even acknowledge moral indignation to be part of a mature moral perspective. But yeah, the, the whole woke thing and virtue signaling, which I think is, is deeply annoying um, and doesn't help. You know, how many people are really stirred to help the poor when someone uh, from their kind of moral high horse uh, condemns them while they're sitting in their, in their college dorm room? I, I mean, I'd say very, very few. Mother Teresa, off you go, you know, and I think she'll have a, a far greater impact on actually changing people. All right. So that's step one to find meaning, feel indignant. Here's step two. Second, you want to make yourself heard. You want to put up a lawn sign that says <laughs> hate is not welcome here or wear a T-shirt that says stop the violence by putting up a lawn sign that everyone else in your neighborhood already has or wearing that T-shirt that all of your friends already wear. You are taking a stand and displaying who you are. You're showing the people who are trying to silence you that you are not going to stay silent. You're going to wear your fashion item whether they like it or not. Yeah, I say do it, don't say it. In other words, uh, the moral life's about action. Show me action. So you're against violence. Okay, good. Do what Gandhi did. Do what King did. You know, um, you're you're for helping the poor. Go go to Calcutta. Mother Teresa's sisters uh, take volunteers all the time, or go to your local. Uh, uh, Catholic charities in, in your city. Um, do something. Don't just signal virtue with a stupid T-shirt, but actually do it. You know. So again, I, I'm being a little bit negative here. I, I mean, I go back to 
what I said last week is you can find traction. So if you got a young person who's wearing a T-shirt saying stop violence, great. I'm against violence. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I honor the, the crucified God who took on the violence of the world and took it away through the divine love. Good. I'm against violence too. But um, maybe work with that and say get get involved in, in nonviolence or, hey, I, I'm for helping the poor. Terrific. There's all kinds of concrete ways you can do it. Do it rather than talk about it. All right. Here's the third stage. Again, satirical, satirical. The third thing you want to do is to tell your story. It wasn't easy to come up with feelings as good as your feelings. You had to go through a lot. So you want to inspire others by sharing about yourself. Sometimes the bravest thing you can do is talk about yourself a lot. Sometimes you have to keep talking about yourself, even though other people selfishly keep interrupting and trying to talk about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, do some of the saints write autobiographies? Yes. Think of uh, Ignatius of Loyola. Think of, uh, of um, Teresa of Avila. Think of Augustine. I mean, so I get that. A, a great saint can tell his or her story. Um, but again, see, I, I, I think, and again, those are great saints who were uh, walking the walk, as they say, as well as talking the talk. Um, I would rather say find a great story that's beyond yours. Find a story that that is uh, saintly and compelling, and try to conform yourself to the to the contours of that story, um, because there's always the danger of just prideful self uh, advertising. As I tell my own story, no, say I, I'm devoted to this saint. I'll put it in a Catholic perspective. That means I find that story really compelling, um, and that's the whole initiation ritual thing. It wasn't, hey, let's get these young people together around the campfire and tell their personal stories. I mean, ho-hum. They probably say, no, let me tell you these great stories of your ancestors that you should try to emulate. So I think that's a better, that's a better way to grow in virtue. I'm thinking here, I was just at the Extraordinary Focus Seek Conference, you know, oh, yeah. 17,000 yeah. young people, uh, deeply encouraging, an amazing conference. But we had our Word on Fire booth, and one of the best-selling things at our booth were these t-shirts we've made that say oh, yeah. your life is not about you oh good <laughs> and it has a picture yeah. of maximilian kolbe on it and that's immediately what i think of tell his story you know yep. conform your life to to the way that he served at the end of his absolutely yeah that's the saints you know i i've that's one of our great principles that we're on fire the saints and and i got that from von baltazar and many others that the great theologians are the saints and that's part of an initiation ritual is to be drawn into these great uh, uh stories um, I'm all in favor of stories, but I think your own tends to be kind of boring. <laughs> all right, let's let's uh, bring it to a close here. So this is the end of David Brooks's article, New York Times, satirical. The fourth stage to finding meaning in this culture of selfism. The fourth thing you need to do is to condemn bad people. If somebody <laughs> says something new or bad, you need to get on your phone right away. You need to tap the parts of the screen that will make it obvious that you are the sort of person who will not stand for bad people saying bad things. This isn't easy because your phone is low on battery power, <laughs> but you still need to show up. You need to protect people from hearing ideas they may not already have. Yeah, and that's certainly a phenomenon, isn't it? Uh, partially the virtue signaling. Um, I, again, I would just say get in the fight don't talk about it or signal your virtue in regard to it. Get into the fight. You know, I'm reading um, 
this new biography of Churchill. Uh, it's about a thousand pages, but it's a one volume, which is for Churchill biographies is actually kind of short. It's a thousand pages. But, you know, Churchill is such a fascinating life and, and a guy with lots of ups and downs and, and lots of light and dark in his character and all of that stuff, you know. But Churchill belonged to a different uh, time and generation. And I think there's no question he was a man of a big ego for sure. But who, who knew he belonged to something bigger than himself and and believed in, in you know, walking the walk. Remember in, in early in his career, He's first Lord of the Admiralty, so head of the British Navy during World War One, and he he supervises and, and really advocates for the Gallipoli campaign, the Dardanelles campaign, and look at the book for details. But it turns out to be a, a disaster. You know, I mean, hundreds of thousands were killed. The objective was not realized, and eventually the British Army and Navy just retreated. It was a disaster from any standpoint. And Churchill uh, resigned his office, and he didn't write angry articles and, and blame. He felt some people had mistreated him, you know, but what he did was he said, I'm going to go join my regiment. And so he had, you know, he was trained as a soldier and he actually belonged to a regiment. So sure enough, off he went to France and, and in the trenches with mud and rats and, and, and the, the, the dead all around him, he, he fought, he got back into the war and he was, you know, a high level cabinet officer in the British government. But he said, no, nope, time for me to get into the fight. And, you know, by God, he did. And so that to me is kind of an inspiring thing. Not so much, uh, you know, virtue signaling or let me point out how wrong everybody is. But all right, time for me to just get in the battle and fight. I say to people, do that. So there are lots of battles for sure. There are a lot of bad people doing bad things for sure. Okay, get in the fight quietly, unobtrusively, don't advertise what you're doing, but just get in there. Mother Teresa, you know, I'm just going to go into the streets of Calcutta and begin caring for the poorest, the poor. Okay, do it. You know, I, I think that's, that's far better than all the t-shirt wearing and phone calling and virtue signaling and look at me and let me tell you my story. You know, ho-hum, your life isn't about you. It's about surrendering to these transcendent values and then doing it doing it. Get into the trenches and fight. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. We love hearing from all of you who listen to the show. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, visit askbishopbarron.com. Record your question, send it in. We would love to hear it. Today, we have a question from Dan here in my state of Florida. He's wondering whether it's helpful or distracting that we Catholics seem to have lots of ways of describing God. So here's Dan's question. Hello, Bishop Barron. It's Dan from Pensacola. My question is whether or not, as an evangelist, you think it's helpful that we have so many definitions of God in the Catholic tradition. You know, for me, I think it's wonderful that we can say God is who is, or God is love, or God is that which nothing greater can be conceived, etc. But for the nun or for the non-believer, I think we can sometimes leave the impression we're shifting the goalposts. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, I don't think it's shifting the goalposts. I think all those things you mentioned are different ways of saying the same thing. So they're they're illuminating the central mystery of God's way of being from different uh, perspectives. And probably because the questions that were posed were different, 
the audiences were different, the concerns were different. And so you might articulate it in one way or the other, but all of them are saying the same thing. We're not describing different gods or not uh, playing different language games, but but illuminating the same reality from different perspectives. Um, one thing I feel strongly about is the evangelist has got to be kind of uh, uh, light on his feet, meaning he's got to be able to adjust and he's got to be nimble. So you're talking to a, a person. Uh, what's on that person's mind? Uh, what's their background? What are they interested in? Uh, your strategy will change uh, depending on that. Boy, that argument, that really worked with this guy. It might mean nothing to this gal over here. Uh, can you draw from the great tradition these different uh, ideas, um, systems, uh, forms of um, forms of uh, theology? Yeah, and it depends on on the situation you're in. I would tell my students when I used to teach at Mundelein that they they're like doctors with these little you know your your medical case and you have a lot of different. Uh, medicines in there and a lot of different, you know, antidotes and so on, uh, because you don't know what you're going to face. And if you approach every illness with the same strategy, well, you're going to be pretty ineffective. So I, I would say learn all those ways of talking about God. Think of Anselm's, you know, that then which something greater can be thought. Aquinas, the one in whom essence and existence coincide. The Bible, I am who I am, um, or or God is love. I mean, all those are describing the same reality, but with different rhetorical purposes, different audiences in mind. And I would say have them all, have them all at your fingertips so you can use what works in a given situation. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Word on Fire show. A couple quick things. One, if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, you might be excited to know that we've now started producing most of these episodes on video. You will find them on Bishop Barron's YouTube channel. You can also find them on Bishop Barron's Facebook page. Second, if you could take a few seconds and leave a review on iTunes or another podcasting service, that would be super helpful. It takes you just a few seconds, but it really helps get the show out to many more people. Well, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.